Now we look at John 17 and verse 13. But now I come to you and these things I speak. This is Jesus praying, boys and girls. These things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one, for they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Now, we've been looking here at the prayer of our Savior. Uh, He is uh, praying, we think, in the upper room. This is not yet the prayer that Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. That, That prayer, chronologically, is still to come after they go out into the dark and before Jesus is arrested. This is a prayer that Jesus seems to have prayed at the end of his upper room discourse. Um, And we noted earlier that this is one of the most sublime of all portions of Scripture, said Melanchthon. That is Luther's uh, close uh, friend and colleague. In this uh, section, we notice the union and the communion that exists between the Father and the Son in the In this passage, there's a lot to meditate on here. We must appreciate the intra-Trinitarian communion, the Father and the Son communing together in the Holy Spirit. And that this is so that we also could enter into that through faith in Jesus Christ. When we have faith in Christ, we enter into that same communion that they share with one another in the Godhead. And so if we desire uh, substantive personal communion with God, then it does us well to listen to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, just by way of review, you'll note that uh, Jesus petitioned that the son would be glorified, that Jesus Christ would be glorified, that the father would glorify the son and that by glorifying the son, that the father also would be glorified. So Jesus prays to the father And this, of course, being the son who is both God and man. uh, Jesus is praying here as our priest, making intercession for you. And this should be an encouragement to you tonight that Jesus is praying for you. He loves you, that his prayers prevail upon the father for you, that uh, we are sustained by the prayers of Jesus Christ. Peter was sustained on that night by the prayers of Jesus. You'll remember because uh, Jesus told Peter, you know, Peter, Satan has desired to sift you. That means Satan was going to attack Peter. And Jesus comforted Peter, though. Remember, Peter had too much confidence in the flesh. He said, I never leave you and nor forsake you. And Jesus Tells him, you're going to betray me by the time the cock crows three times. 
But, Peter, I've prayed for you. And so Jesus is praying for us as well as our high priest. So he said, the hour has come to glorify your son. And that hour, of course, is the hour of the cross. It's the hour of Jesus's greatest trial, his arrest, his, no, I should say his betrayal, his arrest, uh, his trial, his crucifixion. And the wrath of God being poured out on the Lord Jesus Christ as he's dying on that cross for us. The son is glorified in the obedience to the father. Now, as I said earlier, this is not the son doing this unwillingly for the father. The, the son, you have to realize, is as willing to die for you as the father is to have his son die for you. They, they are in mutual agreement with the Holy Spirit. This plan was Sometimes called the covenant of redemption before the foundation of the world. That is, you have to understand, young people, that your triune God made this plan of redemption up even before creation. All three persons were in agreement. The Father plans, the Son accomplishes the plan, the Spirit applies the plan. And now Jesus said, the hour has come. And Jesus says, glorify your Son by glorifying the Son the Father is going to be glorified. And the greatest glory that the Father receives is in the death of the Son, in the death and the resurrection. That is the greatest work of Jesus Christ. With all the teaching and the preaching Jesus did, with all the miracles Jesus performed, yet the greatest of the glory is saved for the cross. It is the wisdom of the cross, Paul says. Uh, the foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of the world. The wisdom of the cross is beyond human understanding and comprehension. Uh, the world would never have made a religious system that involved the Son of God dying and being humiliated on a cross. The world would not have come up with such a religion. But that is what Jesus prays. Glorify your Son. The Father has given the Son authority. Oh, and the Son gives eternal life. We are told. The Father gives in His choosing to the Son. The Son gives in His dying and His rising from the dead. And the Spirit, who is not explicitly mentioned here, nevertheless, He gives by way of regeneration to the sinners. And so all three persons give eternal life to sinners. And I can't remember which Puritan is, but I, I remember the one quote of a Puritan saying, I know not which person of the Trinity I love best. For all three have loved me and have given themselves for me. In different ways, though. But all the Father gives by way of choice. The Son gives by way of death. The Spirit gives by way of regeneration. And now we see this. Jesus says, just by way of review, this is eternal life. That they may know you. Uh, that they may come to know you. What is it to have life eternal? It is, it is to come to know God. And as we saw, it's like marriage, that union between a husband and a wife is not just to know intellectually. See, boys and girls, we want you to really know God. 
We, we don't want you just to have a knowledge of him. Like some kind of student at divinity school who just studies about religion for intellectual reasons as an intellectual pursuit only. We want you to know God the way a, a husband or a wife knows her spouse, to know them, to be known by them, to have union with them. And how how can you have union with God? You have union with the Lord by faith in him, believing in the son. When you believe on the son, then you have come to know the father and the spirit. This is eternal life that you would repent and you would turn and trust him. Knowing God means knowing about him. It means believing him, means trusting in him. Well, then Jesus goes on and he says, the son gives words of the father to his disciples. Give, he prays in the first petition, glorify your son. And now Jesus in the second petition of the prayer here says, the son asks the father to keep the disciples He prays that all of God's elect would be kept in Christ. Glorify your son and now take the words which you have given to me. The father gives the words to speak to the disciples and he and Jesus prays. Look at verse nine. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world here. He's praying for the church, praying for his disciples Those that you have given me, they are yours and all things that are mine are yours and I have been glorified in them. And so he he asks that the Lord would keep him. Now, that brings us to uh, tonight. And in this petition here, Jesus is returning to the father. He tells us in verse 13, but he has given his disciples The word of God, the word of the father has been given. And so two thoughts here tonight. One, Jesus is praying about his returning to the father and that he has given the word to them. And then secondly, and here's where the petition is applied. He prays that the word which he has given to his disciples would be a means of sanctification for them. That is a means to conforming them to Christ. Now, look with me here at verse 13 in our text. But now I come to you. And these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. Now, what is he saying here? I am coming to you. He's he is saying here he is about after his death. And his resurrection, he will come back to the father. We spoke about this this morning, didn't we? When we talked about the son of man coming unto the ancient of days from Daniel seven. That's what Jesus is anticipating here. He's about to finish his work. And once Jesus finishes his work on the cross, he be raised from the dead. And after he's raised from the dead, he'll make appearances unto men for a period of 40 days. And then comes the ascension and the coronation. I'm coming Back to you, Father, says Jesus. But he's noting here that he has spoken of these things to his disciples. He's given them the word and the word, notice here, has come to them in joy. Now, even though 
They have the word and it brings joy. Note here, it brings something else. And this is something that we experience, I think, ourselves as Christians who follow the disciples. He says uh, that they may have my joy made full in themselves at the end of verse 13. And then verse 14, I have given them your word. He says that again. I have given them your word and the world has hated them. So notice two things here. Number one, the word comes to the believer with joy. But also that the word comes to the believer along with persecution or enmity with the world. So you have kind of a dual reality, if you will. The word of God, which comes to us by way of the spirit, the spirit enables us to believe he regenerates us. He gives us ears to hear. Jesus touches our ears. He touches our eyes. We can see we hear with our ears now, our new ears that Christ has given us. And we hear the shepherd's voice and we follow after him with great joy. But as we follow after Jesus with great joy and the word gives us joy and it gives us strength. Many of you can remember the joy that came to you when you first were converted. Those of you who came to Christ maybe later in life and you you knew the stark contrast. Now, it may have been different for those of you raised in the church. And, and as Spurgeon says that the sun kind of rose on you just like in the morning. And you, you can't necessarily point to a specific time and place, but it just gradually rose on you. But. For those of you for whom it was something sudden, you you note the contrast. But either way, the word comes to the believer with joy. The spirit dwells within us and gives us, Paul tells us, joy that is unspeakable. We have why? Well, because we know and experience several things. We have this Holy Spirit within us now who gives us joy. We have a consciousness now. Of forgiveness of sins. We, we, the world does not have a consciousness of forgiveness. They don't have peace of conscience. Uh, they have an, a, a, a conscience that is accusing or excusing their sin. But we have, because of the work of Jesus Christ, we have a, a consciousness of pardon. We also have security in troubles and afflictions. I was reading uh, Charnock, Stephen Charnock. This afternoon, and Charnock is noting that, you know, trials and tribulations come to believers and unbelievers alike. Everybody has difficulties in this world. We all have troubles and afflictions, but the believer has security in the midst of those troubles and afflictions. We have a place to go in a time of sorrow. We're not left to just try and do this on our own. We also have this another reason for joy that comes to us in crisis. We have hope of eternal life. That is, we have an assurance that after this world is over, we we have hope. And as I said this morning, unbelievers often don't want to think about what comes after death. They don't like to talk about death because there is no hope really for them. And then we also have adoption. We have fellowship. Now we call God our father. He's not just God creator to us. But he is our, our, our heavenly father. And these are just some of the reasons that the word gives us joy. But note here in verse 14, just as the word comes to the believer in joy, it also brings about opposition, alienation, enmity with the world. The world, despite 
its protestations to the contrary, the world does not love Jesus Christ. They killed him. And now they hate us, too. We who sincerely follow him. Only the good hand of God actually prohibits the world from eliminating the church. It's the providence of God, the goodness of God that holds them back uh, from from seeking to destroy us outrightly. So Jesus here is saying, I'm coming to you, Father. I've given the disciples my word. The word has produced joy within them, but it has also produced that alienation that I, as their master, have experienced as well. No man is above the master. And if Jesus experienced tribulation, we're going to experience tribulation. And so, you know, boys and girls, this is why as you get older, God will season your faith. He'll test your faith. He'll, you know, like the children of Israel, he'll put you in the fiery furnace at some point in your life due to opposition from the world. Remember, how did the children in Daniel's day find themselves in the fiery furnace? Well, they wouldn't bow down to this alien God that they were commanded to do. And the world didn't like it. The king didn't like it when he found out that the Hebrew children wouldn't bow down. And so he places them in the fiery furnace and they say, look, you know, uh, you know, no disrespect to you, king, but we're not bowing down to your God. And you can do with us as you please. Well, that that comes with the word The word brings about this friction that we go about and we experience as Christians. That's why Peter teenagers, Peter said, you know, don't let these trials come upon you by surprise. Don't let these trials overtake you as though something strange was happening. <laughs> now, you know, it, it, you may think it's strange at first just because you haven't experienced it yet. God just, you know, like, you know. Little plants sometimes are kept in the nursery for a season, but there's a time that you kind of have to grow up and you have to put the plant out in the outdoors and and suffer the winters, you know, that take place outdoors. Unless you're from Orlando, Florida, you guys don't have real winters, you know. (laughs) But ordinarily for the rest of the country, (laughs) except for California and Arizona and Hawaii, uh, you know, this is the norm. You got to go outside eventually, and you have to be tried, and you have to be tested by the elements out there. And and so Peter says, you know, young people, don't be surprised when you're like, wait a minute, what what's this? You know, why why am I suffering? You know, this kind of mocking uh, from maybe my peers, or you know, why why am I being given a hard time? Almost seemingly for no reason, you know, maybe by my boss. He just seems to drive me, you know, so much harder than than the others who are working for him. I seem to be doing as much or more than anybody else, but he seems to be riding my case all the time. Well, maybe because your godliness is provoking his unregenerate nature. And he can't strike at God, but he can get at you. And so he becomes this kind of tyrant of a boss. And but God's using this for your good. And, and so Peter says, don't don't think that's strange. This actually is the norm. God's just bringing you into it maybe for the first time uh, in your life. Uh, but this is this is what it's like. And, and you need to be prepared for that. And, and you know, be sober 
about it. The good news is God is with you in those things. I mean, so that when God throws the children of Israel into the fiery furnace, there's not three of them. There's four of them now in there. There's one like the son of man walking around among them. And it's a picture of Christ with his people. Christ is is with his people when they are going through these trials and tribulations. So two things. Joy comes with the word and also enmity from the world comes uh, by way of the world. But look at verse 15. Now, Jesus says, I do not ask you to take them out of the world. <laughs> OK, <laughs> you've been given joy, but you've been given trials and tribulations and you don't like those trials and tribulations. And so what does Jesus say? I'm not taking you out of the world, though. And that's what I was referring to this morning. No rapture here. Okay, no, no secret rapture. And, and then the world's left to spin out of control on its own. No, you're in the fiery tribulation until Jesus comes again, till the very end. He's, he's right there in black and white. Don't take them out of the world. But to keep them from the evil one, he says, that's what he's praying. He's not praying that you would have an easy life, but he is praying that God be with you through the sufferings. He says, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And that he's, they is his disciples here. And, and so he's praying for us to grow in grace. Keep us from sin. Keep us from Satan. But don't take us out of the world. We are to be salt and light in the world. We glorify him by staying in the world. And you and I need to stay in the world. There's a temptation for us to withdraw from the world. But Jesus prays that we won't. Now, let me move on to a quick second point here. First point was that Jesus was returning and that he's given his word to his disciples. The second point here is the word which he gives to his disciples, he prays, would make them like Jesus. The son prays to the father that the word that he has given to his people would make them like Jesus Christ. Verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Now, what is that word sanctification? It is to be separate unto God, holiness unto God. And he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Notice there, basically, Jesus is praying, sanctify them in your word. The word of God is the means that God uses to make us holy. The spirit is tied to the word and the word is tied to the spirit. The spirit uses his word. The spirit inspires the word. And then the spirit uses the word he is inspired to shape us, to mold us and conform us in our affections, in our motives in our priorities, in our outlook, in our worldview, in our attitudes to that of Jesus. To make us patient like Christ, to make us loving like Christ, to make us self-denying like Christ, to make us uh, courageous like Christ. Every way that Christ is in his perfect humanity, the, the, the Bible 
is the means that God uses to make us like him. He says, as in verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. So notice here that he prays for sanctification, but it's not a holiness that is derived by segregation. The church has sometimes erred in the last 2000 years on that point. Some have thought that sanctification came by way of segregation, self-segregation, separating ourselves out of the world. But no, Jesus says, you have sent me into the world. I also have sent them into the world. The point is that we are sanctified by the word and that our sanctification comes by the word, not by segregating ourselves from the world. You're supposed to be in the world, but sanctified under Christ. That the, the, the word makes me more like Jesus. And as Jesus came into this world in his humiliation, that I go into this world. And as Christ did, and I minister to this world and I preach to this world and I love this world in the sense that I love my neighbor. And I do good unto them. And by God's grace, that many might believe on Jesus Christ, even as I believed on Jesus Christ. And then Jesus says, for their sakes, I sanctify myself. Now you say, well, I thought Jesus was already sanctified. What does he mean that I sanctify myself? I think what Jesus is saying here is he's setting him apart, himself apart as a holy sacrifice here. That the, the ultimate consecration to God in the ministry of Jesus will be giving himself on that cross. That will be the ultimate act of sanctification. Dying on the cross for the sins of his people. That we might be sanctified in the truth. Now, let me close by saying this. If you really want to grow in sanctification, you're going to have to give yourself to the word. You're going to have to make use of preaching as you're doing tonight. Uh, Not just the preaching, but even after the preaching is over to use the word, use the word at home. Uh, This is a great blessing. Remember, God in his providence has given us the Gutenberg press. Okay. You have to realize for 75% of church history, your brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ had no Bible in their own home, most of them, unless they were pretty wealthy. Okay. Uh, because the scriptures were difficult to duplicate. But in the last 500 years, things have changed. And to whom much is given, you've heard me say this many times, much is required. You've been given a Bible in the vernacular. People have paid for this Bible with their lives. People have sacrificed to get it translated into the vernacular. People have gone to the stake for it. People died, got arrested smuggling it. Okay, so that you Anglo-Saxon types or whoever you are could read it in your in your own language. And now Jesus has prayed for us that we be sanctified, we be conformed. So use your Bible. Read your Bible. Think about the Bible. 
Uh, use a Bible calendar if you need to. Dads means reading the Bible. This is your responsibility. No, don't. It's not mom's. This is this is your job. To see that it's done. Read the Bible in your home to your wife to your you know Ephesians five twenty six. This is one of the things I mentioned at First Baptist across the street last Thursday. What is what does Christ do? He washes us with the water of the Word. We're the bride. He's the groom. What's your job as a groom? Your job as a groom, wash your wife with the water of the word. That she would be sanctified, even as Christ sanctifies us. And that even and even as Christ sanctifies himself, so husband, you need to sanctify yourself. Give yourself to the word. Let's pray together. Lord, we love.